Welcome to today's Navigating the Cancer Maze. I'm your host, Grace Gawler. And today you'll be hearing from Professor Rajiv Khanna. He's a leading researcher at the QIMR Berghofer Medical Research Institute in Brisbane in Australia. They're a world progressive translational research institute focused on cancer, infectious diseases, mental health and a range of complex diseases. Now, the Berghofer Medical Research Institute has a long and prestigious history, spanning more than 65 years, and the Institute has grown steadily to embrace cancer research in particular and clinical scientists, with now over 700 scientists and support staff. Professor Kanner has been researching immunotherapies and has had a major breakthrough in the treatment of the aggressive brain cancer glioblastoma multiforme. Professor Kanner developed a technique to modify patients' T-cells in the laboratory and effectively train them to attack the virus, then return them to the patient's body. When the killer T-cells destroyed the virus, they also destroyed the cancer. And you'll be hearing more about this technique later in the show. So I know that you're going to enjoy hearing our very special guest today on Navigating the Cancer Maze, Professor Rajiv Kanner. Hi, Grace. Good. It's really great to have you on the show today. Um, Rajiv, may I call you Rajiv? Yes, of course. Um, Can you tell our listeners about your background and in particular, what motivated you to study and research cancer viruses, tumour immunology and vaccines? Sure. Uh, I was actually originally trained in India, um, from northern India, and when I moved to Australia 25 years back, I originally started my research in Adelaide, and that's where I got early exposure to working in the field of immunology with a very well-known immunologist, Professor Graham Mayhoffer. Uh, at that stage, uh, that research was primarily focused on infectious diseases, but then I was looking for another job, and I got this uh, email from um, a very senior scientist at QMR, and his name is Professor Dennis Moss. He's now retired, and he offered me the job to come to Brisbane And when I read the literature, what he was working on, and I was really fascinated. And the area which he was working on was a cancer, which is known as Burkitt's lymphoma. Mm -hmm. And that is the first cancer which was actually in the world recognized as a human cancer to be associated with any viral infection. Mm -hmm. And when I looked at his publications, it was fascinating at that time, 25 years ago, um, there were there were first few groups in the world who were actually trying to work it out how these viruses hide from the immune system and how these viruses then go and use that clever tactics to escape from the immune system. So that gave me sort of a, a huge interest to look at what are those underlying mechanisms are and the viruses actually go and hide in the in the body of uh, in our body and then then cause the cancer and then actually how we can manipulate that immune system to re-educate the immune system to escape from that immune escape and then to attack the virus again. So it, it was just a fascinating area at that time. And when I came to QMR 25 years ago um, with Professor Moss, I worked uh, and we actually worked for many years to really understanding whole immune system, the, how the immune system works against this virus. And then we developed actually the first immunotherapy against this cancer, uh, against this virus, which also causes a lymphoma in transplant patients. And that was a patient in, in, in Prince Charles Hospital. We were the first to treat that patient with his own immune cells. And that started the whole type of research, and I've been continuing that type of research now. <laughs> wow, that's uh, a lot of amazing information. Yeah. So your research here at the Berghofer Medical Research Institute, we're located in Brisbane in Australia. What liaisons uh, do you have, does this institute have, with global organisations? 
Huge. Um, without these collaborations, what I call them, a scientific collaboration, we would be nowhere. Uh, we work not only just institutions in Brisbane, but also interstate, but internationally as well. Um, we have collaborations with hospitals because our research is very much driven towards patient care in terms of patient treatment, developing new treatments. So we have to have very strong collaborations with uh, not just with research institute, but also with clinical centers where the patients are getting current treatment. So we have a huge, large program which has been going on for many years, well over a decade now, with University of Hong Kong. I'll give you mm -hmm. one example. Uh, there at University of Hong Kong, there, there's a hospital, Queen Mary Hospital. Um, Hong Kong and the southern China uh, is particularly endemic for one particular type of cancer which occurs in the back of the nose. And again, in particular, ethnic group of people is Chinese origin. It's called nasopharyngeal carcinoma. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's actually it's right at the joint section where the, your nose joins with the, with the vocal cord. And that particular cancer um, is associated with, again, with Epstein-Barr virus. And there has been a number of studies which have suggested that somehow this cancer, uh, the virus is a major player, but some other environmental factors also contribute to that. And one of the critical environmental factors is the dietary factor. Uh, the dietary factor comes is the salted fish these people eat there uh -huh. in that region. And that has some sort of a carcinogen which then cooperates uh, with EBV, Epstein-Barr virus, and leads to this, this cancer. So uh, we have been working with a group there and we have an ongoing immunotherapy program for this cancer. And back in 2012 we published our first clinical study. It was a large clinical trial and we're still continuing with that as well. That's one of the group we are working with groups in in U.S. Uh, particularly developing immunotherapy for transplant patients. We have been working closely with group in Birmingham, Professor Alan Rickinson, um, many years, and he's actually coming next month here. We are organizing an international Epstein Barr virus meeting, which actually mm -hmm. is a very very important meeting. I tell you, it's going to be the 50 years of discovery of Epstein Barr virus. Uh, it was in 1964 of March 96 when the EBV was discovered in Burkitt lymphoma. And July 16th, we get uh, international people coming here to commemorate that 50 years of EBV discovery and really, really look at that where we are now and we're going to be in next maybe 50 <laughs> years time if we can solve that problem. That's uh, very interesting indeed. Uh, we have uh, relationships with a surgical hospital in Singapore as well. Yes. And Professor Francis Xia Chun, who's a colorectal surgeon, he was the first diagnosed apparently in Singapore with Burkitt's lymphoma oh, when he was a little right. boy. Oh. And he wasn't expected to survive. And today he's a yes. world famous yes. colorectal yes. surgeon. Yes. So I'll be telling him about that uh, <laughs> conference if he doesn't know about it already. Um, in his Nobel Prize acceptance speech 2008, Professor Harold Zahausen stated that slightly more than 20% of global cancer burden can currently be linked to infectious agents, that is viruses, bacteria, parasites. Mm. He implicated one of those viruses, the Epstein-Barr virus, which we've uh, spoken about now, as an oncogenic virus. Can you tell us what an oncogenic virus actually is and how does it play a part at that molecular level as a cause of cancer? Mm. In a moment, we'll talk about it as used as a curative agent. Yes, sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so <clears throat> um, many of these viruses, not just EBV, but for another example is papillomavirus and viruses like hepatitis B, hepatitis C. Uh, these viruses have very select or very specific type of genes um, which are expressed when the virus gets into human cells. And, so, and those genes are very critical for survival of the virus itself. 
but more importantly it actually what it does is it hijacks our own system of cell proliferation, cell survival, and cell death. Mm -hmm. So what it does, the virus, when it gets into the cell, it doesn't want the cell to die, but it also doesn't want the cell to sort of go into this, sh in, in what we call, in a scientific sense, senescence. Senescence means the cell should not go into a stage where the cell is prone to more death. So it gives this a, what we call survival signal. It, it, it will avoid the death, but also at the same time avoids the immune system as well. Mm -hmm. So these three things work all together in one hit. And what happens, these viruses, which we call oncogenic viruses, they have specific genes which are expressed in the cells which counter all three of these pathways. They will shut down the immune system, they'll shut down the, any capacity of cell to die, and plus on top of that, there are genes which actually enhance the survival of the cell as well. So that's why these are oncogenic viruses. So they, they will cut out any way if there is any process comes in which actually limits the, the, the long term or the shortens the life of the cell. For example, EBV. When you infect a, a human white blood cells with EBV, mm -hmm. the cell never dies. It lives forever. So what we call the concept called immortalization mm -hmm. uh, in a scientific term. So we can actually uh, take your white blood cell in the laboratory and just add EBV onto these cells we got cell lines from thousands of people stored in, and when we work in the research, and these cells never die. We just Amazing. take it out. Yes. So, <laughs> so you you can there are cell lines you know that that have been growing with us. We have for 25, 30, 40 years now. And these cells are amazingly, you know, you can just take it out of the storage system, bring it back into the culture, and they grow forever. And so that is the uniqueness about these these viruses. And, tell you another very fascinating thing. You, once you're infected with these viruses, you can never get rid of these. So EBV, if you get infection when as a childhood, uh, it will stay with your life until you die. You cannot get rid of this virus. <laughs> Same with... One of my next questions. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that's the, 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 these viruses, sort of, I always say that we have co-evolved with these viruses from higher and lower primates to humans. Mm -hmm. and we have, we, they have learned to live with us and we have learned to live with them. So there are other viruses which are more pathogenic in terms. They will infect, make us really sick, and we die for those viruses. Whereas viruses like EBV, which cause cancer, they actually have learned the lesson in a very clever way, saying we have to live with this host. We want this host not to die. So you, you can see this. Unless the host becomes some sort of immune system goes into haywire, something goes wrong, and we actually force the virus to cause cancer, we all live with these viruses very cleverly. So it, it is just a capacity of these viruses to establish what we call, in scientific terms, latent infection. That's the uniqueness mm -hmm, about mm -hmm. these viruses. That's what it is. Mm. Boy, that's really interesting. Um, my next question actually was any validated way of testing. So because someone shows up a teeter of um, antibodies, mm. Mm. Um, doesn't necessarily mean they'll go on to get cancer. No. Right, that's a, a yeah. really good point. Yeah. Yeah. Could you Sorry. elaborate on yeah, that yeah. a bit more? So the, the, the presence of antibodies is simply a reflection that you have been exposed to the virus. That does not mean that you're prone to cancer. But, but uh, there are now some indicators in terms of blood tests, which are now becoming a potential biomarkers, what we call them, for developing a cancer. Mm -hmm. For example, in China, as I said, the, the cancer which Chinese people get from EBV in the nasopharyngeal carcinoma, they have recently found that if you take the saliva of these people 
and test for these certain antibodies, that is a prognostic marker for people getting nasopharyngeal carcinoma. And one of the antibodies is called IgA, which is an immunoglobulin mm-hmm. A. If they are positive for IgA directed towards one of the viral capsid antigen, you are more likely to get NPC. So this is now the test the Chinese government has actually established this in a more in a public health sense, and now everybody's being tested regularly to make sure you're not detected positive for IgA for this viral capsid antigen of EBV. If you're positive, you're immediately put, put into a sort of a clinical follow-up analysis to make sure those patients are not actually having suffering any problem. Mm. Could you see that sort of test uh, going further towards other viruses, or do you think they're more likely to be blood test related? Or what's down the pipeline? Yeah, I mean, the, the tests are always in development. You know, people develop new type of tests. It, either they are tests more DNA-based tests or antibody-based tests. They're always there. Whether they are applicable in terms of more in a larger public health sense, uh, mm-hmm. we, we don't know. You know, the, the, there are always these biomarkers that are coming in, and the blood markers, what we call them. So it's very difficult to say that one particular test will be more positive for the others or not. Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, that's been quite a, uh, a juicy session <laughs> uh, on the first of Navigating the Cancer Maze. We're going to be back um, after a short break to hear more from Professor Rajiv Kanna about immunology, cancer, and today talking about glioblastoma, so don't go away. Welcome back to Navigating the Cancer Maze. Um, Rajiv, uh, there's a lot of discussion in the medical literature about antisense as a future treatment for diminishing viral loads. Um, as well as vaccines. Is this something that you've been researching? And can you explain what antisense actually is and define the term vaccine? Sure. So the antisense, uh, uh, that's not my area of research, but I can explain you what antisense is. So what happens when a virus or any pathogen comes into your body, um, um, it, it has this capacity to, particularly the virus, to hijack our own expression system, the protein expression system, and then use that system to then express its own genes. Mm -hmm. Um, So what antisense is, they are a small uh, stretch of DNA sequences which we can actually add into this infected cell uh, with a different type of technologies, and that actually pairs with the viral DNA and stops it being expressed. Basically, it, it, it bears as a um, some sort of a, a, a if, you, if you're trying to run a train on the rail track and I put a little block of wood on the on the track and the train just can't go forward. Basically, it's just stopping the train moving forward. Uh, uh, what happens just to not to make it too complicated for for your listeners uh, when a DNA is transcribed into RNA and trans and then translated into a protein. This this there is a thing called and the ribosomes. The ribosome mm-hmm. walk over the RNA like a train walking on the track. Yep. So the antisense actually comes and binds onto the sequence of the RNA or the DNA and stops that process, the ribosome or the DNA being trans- transcribed into RNA. That's the whole system. Is Yes, it has been used, if, for example, in hepatitis C virus, but its applicability into real clinic, it's still in a very, very early stages. I don't know how far you can take it in terms of, you know, getting off the shelf and treating patients. Mm-hmm. It is showing very, very promising results, particularly in hepatitis C virus and other viruses as well. But in terms of larger application, I think it's, it's too far away to, to be taken into, into more, more in gen- general use as such. Now, in terms of vaccine, it's completely different. The vaccine is actually using a, a part of the virus or the virus itself or using a, a, 
a, a, a sort of a pseudo expression system, what we call it, where you actually pretend to be a virus. For example, in this case, a recombinant protein can be taken, which actually acts like a viral protein, mm-hmm. is then given to the patient either in a combination with an adjuvant, that is, you mix that, which actually stirs up your immune system and induces an immune response, and that immune response then deals with the virus. So it, 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 there are two quite different technologies, antisense and the vaccine. The mm-hmm. vaccine is main in, is aimed is to induce an immune response. That immune response then gets rid of the, all the virus-infected cells, where the antisense it actually gets into the infected cells and stops the virus from expressing its genes. So that's how the immune That's really goes. clear. Thank you. So. That's the clearest explanation I've heard so far <laughs> from anybody. I've actually wondered myself because it's been a really confusing area. Okay. So thank you for that. Um, so moving on from virus as possible causative agents in developing cancer, can you tell us how viruses can be recruited as treating agents in cancer? And from the medical history point of view, who had that original idea or concept? Um, I, I don't exactly remember the name of the person, but yes, that has been exploited and it is becoming quite a powerful technology. People are using, for example, um, there is a group I understand in China and there's another few groups in in US who are using adenoviruses to treat some of the head and neck cancers. These adenoviruses are specifically targeted into the cancer cells and then these viruses actually start replicating in those cancer cells. As they replicate, they kill the cells, basically. So any virus which will replicate, it will actually have to get out of the cell. And what we call lytic cycle of the virus, mm-hmm. it, it results in the death of the cells. That's simply that one way people are using. The other is actually what they do is the other approach is for the people have used a virus called herpes simplex virus, where they've introduced a gene called thymidine kinase. And that particular gene is target for a drug. So you take that virus, because it's particularly more prone to get into neuronal cells, and then so, which are cancer cells, then you give a drug which acts on that gene, it results in the death of the virus with the cancer in the, as well at the same time. So yes, that technology is there. But again, you know, it's just like antisense, it's more, more in a, in a clinical development phase. Right. It hasn't actually, I would say, when it reached the stage where I would say, yep, this is it, this is going to go and really solve all the major problems of the cancer, not yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a and very s- promising approach, of course. <laughs> you said neuronal, so presumably you're talking about nervous system type of cancer. Cancer, brain, yes. Brain yes, tumors, Yes, 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 absolutely. That's where the, the, the HSV, TK, uh, thymidine kinase approach has been used and tested in, 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 at least in some patients, yes. Okay. Um, so, as you have a particular interest in Epstein-Barr virus, can you describe the nature of that virus, how it's transmitted, and why this particular virus took your attention for your vaccine development? Sure. Uh, Epstein-Barr virus is, is, a, is an, as I think I briefly mentioned earlier as well, it's a common herpes virus we all carry, and 90% of the human population carries this virus around the world. So, the EBV is, is a very interesting virus. If you go back... Um, into sort of human evolution and try to look at, you find EBV-like viruses in chimpanzees, in macaques, and also in in, in all old world and new world monkeys. Mm-hmm. So it clearly that that a virus which actually originated way back, millions of years back, has actually come along with us. And a very interesting thing is that if you look at the DNA sequence of Epstein-Barr virus and look at the virus which is prevalent in macaques or lower or higher primates, it has more than 80 to 90% homology. <laughs> so we have actually carried that virus with us 
way back. <laughs> and what is interesting, the, the primary disease which is actually is known for EBV is not as cancer, but the glandular fever. I'm sure you've heard about this. It's I've also had it called, myself when I was yeah. young. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a very nasty disease. And it's also called infectious mono in certain parts of the world. So what happens, why do we get infectious mono or glandular fever? Majority of us would get EBV infection when we are newborn or a young child as a, when we go to kindy or we play with our friends. But what happens, some parents are very, very careful and not to allow their kids to get EBV infected and they get delayed infection. That is when they get adolescent. They go to you know have a girlfriend or boyfriend. They kiss each other and that's when they get transmission through it's EBV. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's, that's, and it's interesting, we still don't understand as a child when we get infection, it, it doesn't cause that severe illness. But as an adult, when we get that primary infection with EBV, we get a very nasty reaction. We get a you know, glandular fever, which got glands swell up, and you get fever, and you get debilitating disease for days and days and days, and some people actually get chronic EBV infection mm-hmm. for weeks. There is one possible explanation which has been given, is that, that what happens as a child, as a newborn, when we get EBV infection, our immune system is not fully matured, and it can cope with that type of infection and, and just deals with other infections as bacterial or other infection. Whereas as an adult, as an adolescent, when we get EBV infection, we have been already been exposed to so many infectious agents, so many other things, that now when the EBV comes in, our immune system is set in place and it finds it very difficult to deal with this virus, which actually uses the immune system itself to sit inside the immune system. So there is a theory that possibility that late infection drives this very strong hyperimmune reaction to this virus. In fact, some of the research done by our group shows that the illness or the clinical symptoms are not actually because of the virus in your body. It's the immune system reacting against the virus, which uh-huh. gives you that disease symptoms. That is a fever and the swelling of the glands and everything. It, it's because of the virus immune system is getting so active. And it's trying to fight with the virus. And the virus is saying, yes, you can fight with me, but I can win over you. So that's, it's if really that are happening. So that's where inflammation and cytokines and release and so forth comes in as a part of that. Absolutely, mm-hmm. that is correct. So the, the, the whole the approach of vaccine to EBV is going in a direction where people are trying to develop a vaccine which will actually impair the, that, that hyperimmune reaction towards the virus. And if you, I don't know whether you heard about it, if, if you get a very severe infectious mono, you know what the treatment is? Patients are given corticosteroids. Right. To, to lower their immune reaction. And, okay. and, and that, that is one way of reducing your severity of disease symptoms. So it's, it's, it's very important that when we design an EBV vaccine, we have to make sure whatever we do, we actually tackle that part of the immune system, which is becoming hyperactive. Mm-hmm. And so, so when you, uh, when you actually design the, um, the vaccines, is, that's kind of a one-size-fits-all. You know, there's a lot of personalised medicine around today. Um, so how do you personalize the vaccine, or is it a, across the board? Um, yeah, the vaccine will be more across the board, and, and we have some ongoing research in our group where we are trying to look into that, what that cross-the-board platform will be. And so what happens, in case of EBV, what we are noticing, uh, we have a PhD student actually who is working on this very interesting project, trying to understand why do we get this hyperimmune reaction during when a primary EBV infection happens in glandular fever. And what we have learned actually that there is one particular type of cell in our body which plays a very critical role in the um, initiation and establishment of our 
immune responses to this virus. And what is happening when we are actually looking at the patient who get this infectious mononucleosis, that particular cell type, we call this dendritic cells, they are a very important role play in antigen presentation or recognition of the virus, they are completely eliminated in, 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 in these patients. Don't know where they've gone. Wow. But we cannot see any cell left in the body of these patients. As they recover from glandular fever, they see cells start coming back. So losing such a critical cell from your, from your body must have some dramatic impact on the whole immune regulation. So what we are thinking that probably in some stage we'll have to design a vaccine which actually will, will reduce that impact of the infection on these particular cell types. Because if you don't have that cell, the whole regulation around that cell is gone completely. Mm, mm. So we are trying to sort of make sure that a vaccine could be designed in a way that will actually overcome that huge deficiency of these cells, but also can tackle the virus as well. So there is some project going on in the group, which I cannot d disclose too much because it's sure. not gone anywhere as yet. So yes. we are still working on it. Our aim will be to tackle on both sides of the virus and the immune regulation as well. So that's what we're working on now. Mm. Well, I think one of the values of uh, an interview like this is it, it puts faces also to research. Yes. <laughs> and um, it shows that there's this ongoing drive for knowledge and science yes. because in a world where alternative medicine is now sort of still rising and people have lost trust and faith in science, well, part of what we do on this show is to bring people back to that place in the middle, yeah, yeah and to yeah, really uh, then, yeah, yeah, then actually say to them that uh, you know there's a lot going on out there. We're taking a break now on navigating the cancer maze. Don't go away. We'll be right back with more interesting dialogues with Professor Rajiv Khanna on immunotherapies. We're back on navigating the cancer maze, and we're talking with Professor Rajiv Khanna. Now, uh, you've had some rather interesting research published recently. You're a group leader in the QIMR Tumor Immunology Group. Can you discuss some of the research being explored by your group, in particular the breakthrough that you've had with the aggressive brain tumor, glioblastoma multiforme? Sure. Um, so our research um, sort of originally, as I discussed before, on starting on ABV, and then we started working on another interesting herpes virus, which is called human cytomegalovirus, which is, belongs to the same group of virus, but... Uh, but a slightly different biology in terms of CMVs. So it was in 2000 or so when a group in California, uh, Professor Charles Cobbs, who works at the University of California, came up with this very interesting observation. He suggested that that all glioblastoma uh, have CMV infection in, in, these, in these cancer cells. And a lot of people actually criticized him at that stage and said, oh, you're talking rubbish. Uh, and uh, it's funny, actually, in, I met him at a meeting in Boston a few years after that, and I, 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 I actually questioned him that why did he believe that, and he gave me a few series of answers for that. But one particular thing which actually I got up in the meeting, and I, uh, because people were criticizing me, I said, look, guys, don't criticize him. Let him provide you the evidence first, and then you criticize if you don't like it. Because I remember going to another meeting 20 years back, and somebody said Epstein-Barr virus is associated with Hodgkin's lymphoma. And everybody said, you're talking rubbish, because that's not true. And it is true. But not every Hodgkin lymphoma is associated with Epstein-Barr virus. Only 40 to 50% are. Right. And I think what is happening with cytomegalovirus, it is associated with glioblastoma but may not be every glioblastoma is associated. Some proportion are in, associated with that. And the reason I believe that could be possible is that we have actually now have enough evidence that the virus actually sits in 
cancer cells. Whether it is the primary factor of initiation of glioblastoma, we still don't know. But as far as the developing a new treatment is concerned, I think we shouldn't worry about it, whether it, does, it is the causing agent or is not. If the virus is there, let's target it and get rid of the cancer. That's what I believe in. So what we have tried to do is because of our research in our group uh, on CMB and understanding the immune regulation of CMB, we did a lot of work over the last decade or so. We came into this sort of a particular glioblastoma in 2008 or 2007, and we had all the resources in terms of CMV immunology in our in our group. We said we should try, you know, see if we if we can use that knowledge to tr develop some new treatment for GBM. And we were very lucky to get a grant from the National Health and Medical Research Council to test a um, immunotherapy. And we've been treating patients in collaboration with Dr. David Walker, who works at the Neuro Foundation at the Wesley Hospital. And that trial has gone for now almost three and a half or four years now. And we've sort of have very interesting and promising results. Um, it's still, it's a phase one trial. Uh, I think we need to be realistic. We haven't proven that treatment is the treatment for the glioblastoma, but uh, very encouraging results. We have multiple patients who have been through a much more extended life expectancy. Uh, but more importantly, we have series of patients who have actually been treated and, and remain disease free last multiple years. That's very significant. Yes, yeah. And actually, in fact, I didn't understand the importance of that until I was very recently in Boston for another meeting. And and there, when I presented this data and said, this is unheard of, that was a statement made by a few of the clinical groups, people, experts. And the reason it is unheard of, because most of the patients we have treated, um, they're all recurrent GBM patients. And the life expectancy for most of the recurrent GBM patients is six months to 12, at the maximum 12. And we have patients who are now alive. One particular organ is well over four and a half years. Another patient is two and three years or so. So I, I'm, I, for me, it is something when that happens, I find it exciting. But I still i am not convinced <laughs> that this is it. But that's why we are starting a completely new trial, which is now been approved by the, our ethics committee. We will be treating patients um, not recurrent, but more primary GBM. So we, our ultimate goal is to, can we use this immunotherapy uh, to stop any recurrence? Because the time after recurrence and the survival is so short, sure. um, developing an immunotherapy for those patients, it, it becomes often very difficult. We had a non number of patients who came to us after the disease recurrence came up. We were preparing the immunotherapy. We were all ready to give immunotherapy and the patient died. It's, it's really, really very difficult to do that. You know, it's just, um, I know we are scientists, we shouldn't be like that. We should be more, you know, science-driven, but I also have this capacity of being a human being as well. Yes, and sure. when that happens, <laughs> you feel really upset that you, you uh, because on the both sides, we worked really hard to develop something, and the patient is waiting for something to be given uh, as an immunotherapy, and, and suddenly the disease progresses so fast we cannot give the treatment to the patient. So my goal is to actually to bring the treatment early at a stage where the patients have much more longer survival time and the treatment can be given at a much earlier stage. So that's why we are moving the treatment to a primary GBM stage. These patients will get surgery, just the standard process of going mm -hmm. to surgery, chemotherapy, but between the surgery and chemotherapy, we will take the blood sample, prepare the immunotherapy, and once the chemo is finished or they're finished their first line of chemotherapy, we'll give them the immunotherapy followed by that. So it'll be like a combination treatment. So whatever the chemo or the surgery hasn't been able to clear up, 
immunotherapy will come and deal with it. And then we'll see whether that treatment, a combination of all three things, can actually improve the survival of these patients or not. I, I think uh, that's where I see a future promise. Uh, that's really will be very interesting. It's a lot of future promise, isn't it? Yeah. What's the actual process? What's happening in the in the T cells with this uh, down at the molecular level? <laughs> sure, sure. So what happens? We 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 published another study back in 2012 where we actually very carefully and meticulously analysed the immune responses of um, glioblastoma patients. Uh, we had a cohort of around 50-plus patients and looked at their T-cell responses to CMV and, and tried to understand what's, what's wrong. And what we noticed that it was not that these, these patients didn't have the right type of T-cells in their blood. It's just the what of the T-cells they had in their blood, they were just totally non-functional. They were not capable of recognizing the cancer cells infected with this virus. So what we do with the immunotherapy is we actually basically take those immune cells from the body of the patient, bring it into a lab, laboratory, which is very specifically designed to do this type of work, and re-educate these cells. So basically saying, come on, wake up. You, you, you've gone to sleep. You're training them <laughs> You're in training other words. Them, exactly. And so that process of that re-educating or retraining of these cells, um, it, it, it really sort of wakes them up, basically. And we infuse those cells back to the patient. It's their own cells which gets retrained and given back to the patient again. Okay. In that retraining process, uh, do you retrain them, like, chemically? Do you train them with uh, cells that you've got in storage? No. Do the patient cells? How are you doing that retraining? It is patient cells. Uh, So what happens, it's a very simple process where we actually expose these cells to uh, what we call synthetic peptides. And these synthetic peptides are actually nothing else but a mimic of the virus, CMV virus itself. Mm-hmm. Little small fragments of the CMV virus, which has been synthetically designed in our group here. And then we culture these cells with synthetic peptides. It's simply these synthetic peptides actually uh, stimulate the immune system or the T cells in, of the patients uh, in, in the laboratory. But we also add into that culture condition certain growth factors which will support the growth of these T-cells. This is a particular cytokine we use, the recombinant IL-2. And this recombinant interleukin-2 is, is meant to be a T-cell growth factor. Yes. So stimulus, growth factor, go. So you culture these cells for a certain period of time, and the process is around 12 to 14 days long. And by 14 day, we bring the cells out, uh, we test those cells, have they got the right function, right property, and we just ship it back to the hospital to the patient back again for infusion. Amazing process. How how long is it from the process initially where, say this was just coming into being, because we look at trials and clinical trials, phase one, two, three, how, how long is it actually for something like this to start off and then get into the clinical market? Um, varies. Uh, always, um, you know, the, the, the trials are... Uh, um, they are very, very long process, and let me be very honest. Um, it can take anywhere between uh, 10 to 15 years. Um, and the reason for that, it is good to do that. Uh, we don't want to rush things because you give, you rush something, you always do something wrong. Mm. Uh, so it has to be very meticulously done. It has to be properly done in terms of that the, the scientific processes has to be correct. It has to be ethically correct. So we are not doing something ethically wrong. So I'm very, very conscious of that. When, whenever we recruit the patients for any trial, we need to make sure that each of the patients fits with the criteria of the trial. Because what happens, the interpretation of the results from the trial can be compromised if, if you're not recruiting your patients correctly. Okay? Yeah. Then you have to make sure the quality of the 
the therapy you're manufacturing has to be the highest possible standard. It has to be properly tested. It has to be carefully, you know, manufactured. It should be clean. So all that process of getting that approval and making the manufacturing process right, it takes time. Very painful, <laughs> I can tell you. We spend hours and hours and hours and hours, days, weeks, months. Um, some, I can tell you, before I started the trial, I spent three years uh, going through the regulatory process in back in 2008. And I've already spent another almost two years to, to start the next phase of the study. So, you know, I wish we could shorten it, but I think we need to be realistic. It, it is um, clinical trials are tough, long, but they need to be done in this way. Um, sometimes people ask me a question when they drop an email to me saying, why are you so slow? Why are you not going to give us now? I said, wish I could. <laughs> but that's not how the science works. Sure. You know, science works with, with, with process. Uh, with, we have to follow certain procedures. And that's why it takes so long. If someone is listening today and they do have an early stage um, glioblastoma multiform, they do live in Queensland, or do you accept people from outside of Queensland nationally, or do you accept international patients in um, trials? Yes. Um, so primarily the patients are recruited with, from within Queensland, mm -hmm. although we have previously recruited patients from interstate, uh, so the patient from Sydney or Melbourne. They, they, what we do is the process is they have to go through our clinical centre, This, in this case the Wesley Hospital, mm -hmm. so they, because that's the site where the trial has been registered or trial has been approved. So the, the patients are referred from Sydney or Melbourne to Wesley Hospital and then they come to us. No cost to them. We everything is done absolutely free. There's no charges on, on that. So it's the only process is that because legally, the trial site uh, one is Kiama or there is Wesley Hospital. So that's where the patient can be recruited through. Uh, internationally, we haven't recruited any as yet. I don't think we are allowed to because that's how the, the, the Australian legal system works. But I haven't explored that possibility. It may be possible in future. That may be possible. <laughs> I know I'm going to get international inquiries after this interview today. Um, thanks so much for those answers. We're going to be back shortly with our last session today on Navigating the Cancer Maze, which I think you'll agree has been fantastic. Don't go away. Welcome back to Navigating the Cancer Maze. I'm your host, Grace Gawler, and we're here today with Professor Rajiv Khanna. Now, Rajiv, uh, it's our last session, so we're going to launch straight into herpes virus episode shingles. Yes. What is happening in uh, shingles in treatment? Because we see so many patients developing shingles mm. during treatment, after treatment, and it becomes more of a problem than the cancer. Sure. Uh, it's a very simple answer to that. Uh, shingles is actually a, a virus, again, a, another herpes virus, which is called varicella zostovirus. So just like EBV or CMV, Varicella zostovirus, you will get, majority of us will get very early in their life, or sometime during our school-going time. And you, you get these symptoms uh, at that stage, maybe mild, maybe a little more severe. But what happens, the virus actually, like EBV, sits in your body as a latent infection. It will just sit quietly, nothing will happen. At around age, somewhere between 50 onwards, not just in cancer patients, you will notice in some healthy people even, when they grow older, mm they get shingles. Yes. And the primary reason for that is that our immune system starts to fail a little bit at that stage. And particularly in cancer patients, because they're given chemotherapy uh, at a very high dose, 
which primarily not only affects the cancer cells, but also depletes our what we call white blood cells as well, because these are the cells which divide very fast. Every cell which divides fast, chemotherapy will kill it. Okay? Mm-hmm. Hairs drop off because they divide fast. Yes. Bl- white blood cells divide fast, they'll be killed off. So that's the reason. Because we, our immune system is severely compromised by chemotherapy, our viruses like uh, varicella zoster virus reappears and it starts reactivating in our nerve cells. It's very painful to get shingles. I don't mm-hmm. know whether you've experienced it. It's, it's a really, really very painful. So though, because the virus is sitting in the nerve endings, and when it gets activated, it actually is trying to you know, get out of that nerve cells. And it's, it's literally causing nerve cells to burst, basically. So and imagine you're putting a pin through a nerve, how painful it will be. Exactly feels like that. Yeah. So it's very, very painful. So the, the main reason for that is that you're actually basically losing that immune control, which is keeping in check that latent infection. Now, there is a vaccine, which is in a, called an OCA strain, virus strain. Look, I, I, it's a mixed sort of a thing. There, is, there has been some reports which suggest that when you're 50 or so, 50 plus, uh, you should get a reboosted with the varicella vaccine, uh, Oka strain vaccine. Um, that doesn't guarantee that you will not get shingles. But uh, my personal feeling is that it's better to get it vaccinated uh, because it, at least you will have... Uh, if the immune system works, it will control it. Uh, it. It doesn't hurt anything like that. It, it's a very simple vaccine to get. There are no side effects of that. It has been given to thousands of millions of people. So it, 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 it's better to get the vaccine and not to get it. Whether it will protect you, there is no 100% guarantee on that. So shingles is a disease of old age plus, as I said before, of losing your immune system. If you can boost your immune system back again, you will not get shingles. You know. So mm-hmm. that, that's what it is, basically. Is that something that a, a patient should ask their oncologist prior to starting chemotherapy if they know they've had shingles in the past or, or could be susceptible to it? I, I, I'm not expert on that, but I, I would suggest they can talk to their oncologist and get their advice. I would not be able to answer yeah, that sure. question. I'm not an expert on that. But uh, as, far as, as an immunologist, I know the reason why you get it. But um, whether giving vaccine, um, zoster vaccine, would, would prevent shingles in the cancer patient, I'm sorry, I'm not the expert person mm. to answer that question. Thank you. I will find someone who can yes, answer yes. that question. <laughs> <laughs> um, so next week, starting June 15 through 21, it's Immunology Week here. What can you tell us about that week and yes, events for yes. listeners, particularly our listeners from uh, northern New South Wales and Queensland? Yep, yep. yep. So it's, it's, it's an immunotherapy week, just to slightly correct that it's it's immunotherapy week so we have a very very strong immunotherapy program um, in larger our institute and that immunotherapy program is is part of an internal what we got a, a center here at Kiyama Berghofer we call center for immunotherapy and vaccine development and we are treating patients with infectious complication after transplant we are treating patients with uh, cancers, blood cancers, and you know, solid cancer, all different types of, and all these immunotherapies are using uh, different type of immune-based approaches. Um, there are two broad approaches which are being explored here. One is that we take the patient's blood, re-educate the immune cells, and infuse it back. There is another new form of immunotherapy which is really revolutionizing the treatment of all sorts of different cancers, is the antibody-based treatment which is targeting particularly specific molecules on the cancer cells which actually block the immune system from working properly. 
And one of the very recent one which has been approved by is called Epilimab. It, it acts on a molecule called CTLA-4, mm -hmm. which is expressed on the immune cells, which blocks the function of the T cells or recognizing the cancer cells. If you add that antibody or you bring that antibody into treatment regimen, it actually blocks that sort of blocking factor sort of itself. So mm -hmm. the T cells work better. There's another antibody which is only in the last few months been approved by the FDA. It's called PD-1, anti-PD-1 antibody. I don't remember its commercial name, but again, amazing results. Um, you know, it was in phase three trial. The patients were getting treatment, and they, had, they stopped the trial because the results were so amazing, and the FDA immediately approved for clinical use uh, for patients. So it, it you know... I'm really in a very excited. We are actually, I often give an example to my students and postdocs. I said, you know, we had this 20th century of industrial revolution. We're going through cancer revolution uh, in terms of treatment and new treatments which are being coming out, particularly using the immunotherapy. And if we continue with this progress, you know, I won't be surprised we'll have something amazing uh, happen in the next 10 or 15 or 20 years in, in terms of cancer treatment. That's a fantastic uh, place to finish our interview today, actually. And um, I'll be talking further with our listeners in the next couple of minutes, giving them some links and some of the programs that are actually on here at the Institute this week. Thank you so much for graciously accepting to do the interview today and for uh, your incredibly uh, clear communication on a very complex subject. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you. Bye for now. I'm very grateful today for being able to interview Professor Rajiv Khanna, who's been doing some very interesting research with his group at the uh, Berghofer Medical Research Institute in Brisbane in Australia. Now, for any of those uh, folks out there who are listening from Queensland uh, or even northern New South Wales, listen carefully for the following information. Now, first of all, if you'd like to donate, organise an event or leave a legacy, um, there's a website for the Institute. Now, it's easier to find that online at my usual media blog. That's Grace Gawler, G-A-W-L-E-R, gracegawlermedia.com. If you go there, you'll be able to find out a lot of information of how to get in touch with this Institute that's doing such amazing work. Um, they have a free subscribe informative newsletter, which is called Life Lab, Better Health Through Medical Research. Highly recommend that. I've had a look through uh, some of the copies of that excellent material there for you. So sign up to that great publication. It's free and you'll be able to keep abreast of trials, research and health tips, as well as finding out about free informative events presented by QIMR Berghofer Medical Research Institute. As a way of reaching the public about progress in medical research, the QIMR is taking research on the road. So look out for their announcements online on their website as they might be coming to a town near you. Now today I attended a lecture and it was absolutely wonderful. Talking about liquid biopsies and using um, circulating tumour DNA it was an excellent presentation and next week there are some presentations that are open to the public. Now how your body can fight cancer is going to be on Tuesday the 17th of June from 6 till 8 p.m. 
It's at the Central Auditorium at the QIMR Berghofer Medical Research Institute, 300 Hurston Road, Hurston. It's next to the uh, Royal Children's Hospital. And that presentation will be absolutely excellent. They have cancer immunotherapy, uh, revolutionising treatment today. And that'll be Professor Mark Smith, Immunology and Cancer and Infection. And Cancer Cure may be inside you and unleashed by immunotherapy. And we have a very special guest speaker there, Professor Jerome Gallon, um, Cordelier Research Centre from Paris in France. As well, we'll be hearing about stem cell uh, therapy, bone marrow transplantation, improving immunological control of leukaemia. So that's a public forum. It's, um, it's free to attend and highly, highly recommended. Now, as I said, they have many of these types of events and uh, you can look them up online. So go to gracegawlermedia.com, that's G-A-W-L-E-R, and you'll be able to find all of the links through to those various activities. Online, you'll find a PDF download uh, for next week's uh, Immunotherapy Week that's being held uh, in Brisbane and as well also for coming event in July. So I do hope that you have enjoyed today's edition of Navigating the Cancer Maze as much as I have. We'll be talking with you again next week and I hope you have a wonderful weekend and wishing you all good health and uh, longevity. Bye for now.